0: are listening to the Tech Policy Podcast, the show where we often discuss social media content moderation. During those conversations, we're often forced to spend a lot of time doing what you might call remedial First Amendment class. Republicans want to force social media platforms to carry speech. And on this show, we're always explaining that is obviously unconstitutional. Democrats sometimes flirt with the idea of trying to just flat out ban nasty or untruthful speech. Again, no, pretty obviously unconstitutional. Although uh, one of my guests might disagree with me here, I'm gonna, gonna gingerly propose that on today's episode, we might be moving the ball forward a little. Instead of discussing proposals that are ridiculous and wrong, we're going to discuss a set of ideas that I would categorize as pretty reasonable, but but still wrong. Uh, and maybe there's even a sliver of right somewhere in there. The topic at hand is algorithmic amplification. And it's all the rage on the Hill these days. We've seen a flurry of bills, some of them bipartisan, that seek to regulate in this area. I am, of course, your host. Corbin Barthold. I'm joined today by Daphne Keller, the Director of the Program on Platform Regulation at Stanford University's Center for Internet and Society. I'm also joined by my friend Ari Cohn, Free Speech Counsel here at Tech Freedom. Now, whenever I'm working on some big written project that takes a lot of time to complete, I worry that it will be overtaken by events before it sees the light of day, that it will just be obsolete and wasted time. I really have to commend Daphne, whose work I admire so much, but especially this piece. She wrote a big, interesting paper that has only become more relevant since it was written. If anything, it called that a topic would become relevant before most of us were paying much attention to it. Last June, she published Amplification and Its Discontents with the Knight First Amendment Institute. Uh, That paper really helped me understand this topic of algorithmic amplification, and I'm excited to talk with her about that work. So, Daphne and Ari, welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, So, why don't I try and stir the pot a little bit right off the bat? I don't think anybody disagrees that words with a message put into a post or a tweet is speech under the First Amendment. But when those posts or tweets have um, are, get accelerated by an algorithm, when they get amplified, uh, how is that not different from a sound truck blaring a message on a loudspeaker, uh, such that even if it's uh, speech still technically, we can go ahead and regulate it?
2: Well, let me start by saying there are cases that allow um, uh, cities to regulate literal amplification, like how loud something is via a loudspeaker. That is not really what we tend to be talking about here. You know, here the proposals tend to be about uh, penalizing the amplification of particular messages, and the issue there there are kind of two constitutional issues. One is about the speech rights of platforms, which is something we hear about a lot lately, particularly in the the Texas and and Florida litigation. You know, the idea that platforms themselves get to. Um, choose a ranking algorithm and Congress can't come along and and tell them to do it differently, because that's an expression of of their editorial rights. Um, That, I think, is broadly a correct argument under current Supreme Court precedent, but it's not actually the one I'm most interested in. I'm much more interested in the second First Amendment issue, which is about the rights of internet users and the idea that their rights are affected if Congress comes along and says certain messages must be demoted or uh, certain illegal messages must be demoted. And we know that the consequence will be that platforms will demote this big margin of other Uh, legal speech around it in ways that probably predictably will have disparate impact. And, you know, there's this whole whole body of problems um, when when platforms act at state initiative in a way that harms lawful speech. Um, and, And part of what I'm pointing out in in the paper is under a bunch of Supreme Court precedent. It doesn't matter if Congress is saying delete that speech or instead saying, demote that speech, stop featuring it in your recommendations or stop promoting it in a news feed. Those things are identical for First Amendment purposes. Um, the, if, if lawmakers restrict the distribution of speech or restrict the prominent placement of speech, the Supreme Court has said, those burdens get the same strict scrutiny as outright bans. So there isn't this workaround where we say we're just going to regulate the amplified content. This isn't the same as regulating speech. And and Corbin, I'm with you. I'm kind of sympathetic to that. In a little part of me wishes we could do it that way, you know, and have some kind of balance where speech that might be illegal gets demoted, but that's okay because it's still on the platform, you know, et cetera. There's this kind of fuzzy balancing that um that I think people are drawn to in the idea of restricting amplification without requiring platforms to delete the speech outright. But mm-hmm. the case law does not <laughs> open the door to that kind of thing. yeah, and, and that's cool. kind of
1: always the thing when it comes to to speech regulations is there's usually some kind of hook. Where it's a sympathetic cause, and the question is, can you draw that line appropriately and, and really solve the problem without damaging free expression? In my opinion, more often than not, the answer to that is no. Um, but but there's there's always that hook, and, and that's why it's such a, a political hot button issue is because people can really glom onto the the, the why behind people trying to do this kind of thing, uh, which you know makes it a particularly tricky situation.
0: One thing I'd like to highlight for any lawyers or people who really are uh, studying this issue um, with more than just a lay interest in mind, Daphne's paper is not only insightful and just, you know, really good at thinking through the issues, but it's also just a very good piece of legal research that pulls together these Supreme Court cases discussing the topic of distribution and the problem. So worth checking out on that. Level as well, Um, Ari. In terms of the proper analogy, you know, so much is new with uh, still with the internet and definitely with social media as it evolves, and so a lot of this discussion. We had an episode with Baron and uh, Eugene, Professor Eugene Volok, about common carriage and social media, and it kind of descended at points into a war of analogies, uh, which. I'm not sure is always fruitful but but here we are and that's where things tend to trend so i came out and again I, you know i was just playing devil's advocate but but i brought out sound truck i mean is that the best way to think of material that goes viral uh when we want to regulate it or do you have an alternative
1: uh- yeah, I, like Daphne, I, I don't think that quite fits uh, perfectly, frankly. From my perspective, I, I think maybe a more sound analogy is the the staff pick section of a bookstore. Um, and I get a lot of pushback when I draw that analogy because people say, "Well, that's not personalized based on uh, you know your history and, and what we know about you." But what if you're in a small town and you the, the the bookstore owner kind of knows what you what you read, and and you tell him what you what you've read, and then he makes suggestions based on that. Um, I, I, that's kind of a, a closer analogy um, from my perspective, at least when it comes to talking about the recommendation side of this.
2: You know, I I want to jump in on this personalization point because I kind of I kind of don't understand what that is doing in this discussion. To to me. That's a really important issue, the content that gets targeted to people based on their individual behavior, but it's a privacy issue. You know, we need federal privacy legislation. We need mechanisms, in my opinion, to give users control over that kind of thing, but, but that's, a, that's a privacy right. That's about controlling how your data is used. Uh, it seems to me really separate from the question of whether algorithms are amplifying harmful content. And we know that algorithms often amplify harmful content in ways that have nothing to do with personalization. So I really would like to see those two things separated out.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that strongly.
2: If
0: a sound tr- so, and I, I will drop sound trucks after this, I, I promise. But if the problem with the soundtrack, to me, it seems, it's that uh, it's, it's going after, it, there's a captive audience. People living their lives in their residences or whatever have not asked to have a message blared at them. It's not voluntary. Um, there is a degree to which everybody who signs on to a social media account and voluntarily creates an account and starts reading the news feed, that issue is not there. Which leads into something you discuss quite a bit, Daphne, in your paper of sort of what do we want versus what do we really want? And is it is there a place in this discussion for, I mean, uh, let's just call it what it is, a slightly paternalistic attitude of, of trying to regulate in a way that gives people Um, there, you know, it, it satisfies their true wants.
2: So I'm down with some government paternalism, you know, like I am fine, uh, with the sort of eat your veggies message when we're talking about what's in school lunches. And like, there are plenty of places where I don't mind the government coming in and, uh, trying to nudge people to override their preferences. Uh, I imagine I'm relatively on the liberal end of the spectrum in this room on, on that topic. Um, but coming in and nudging in that way with regard to lawful speech you know, in a way that is going to influence what information, legal information, people can see and what legal information they can share that runs into some pretty hard First Amendment barriers, and and they're barriers that I think we should be very very grateful to have. You know, we might be sympathetic to wanting a government thumb on the scale that is going to um, suppress, you know, lawful but terrible um, racist speech, for example, uh, but having that power in the hands of every future administration and every future congress to shape who gets to talk and who gets to reach an audience in accordance with their policy preferences i think is something that should scare everybody we should be very grateful for those first amendment barriers
1: and that's kind of actually why i think that uh, as you discussed kind of later on in your paper i don't think the content neutral Uh, kind of just blanket um, circuit breaker, you called it, uh, approach is is likely to work either. Um, I think that, you know, obviously when you're talking about time, place, and manner restrictions, you need a substantial government interest. And if that government interest is simply quieting the speech or, you know, reducing the flow or the virality of information and expression, I don't think there's any court that's going to hold that that's a substantial government interest. And if it's something narrower... Like preventing certain kinds of speech, I don't think a circuit breaker approach would satisfy the narrow tailoring requirements. So it's kind of, you know, you're screwed one way or the other there.
2: Well, so I mean, the idea of a circuit breaker approach, and and this I don't think is in any of the bills, although you, you can correct me, is just that you would have a quantitative cap on how speech gets amplified. So you can't gain more than X followers per hour or you know, once you have a certain number of likes, you uh, are made less visible in the Facebook newsfeed or, or something like that. Um, you know, that that is content neutral, or at least in principle, it's content neutral. In practice, it's going to penalize, you know, Lil Nas X or somebody who's suddenly going viral and wasn't popular before. Um, and, and so I, you know, I think it has a, a better chance of surviving constitutional scrutiny. My bigger issue with it is I'm just not sure how useful it is. You know, it will uh, occasionally catch something dangerous like you know, a lie about um, a breaking news event that is spreading like wildfire. Uh, but as an RA of mine who used to work in content moderation says, you know, told me most of the time it's going to catch despacito, you know, it's going to catch the many, many other things that go viral all the time and and take away resources in content moderation that could have been doing things that they know are more likely to be useful to focus on this thing that's just kind of the, the hot button issue of the moment. I yeah, think right. the- So that's
1: kind of a twofer. It, it takes away the... Uh the resources for content moderation is also uh, over-inclusive.
0: Yeah, I, I have a feeling we will return to the topic of is amplification really where we should be putting our energy. But but, but before that, I just wanted to, this seems like a good moment to mention to Daphne. So on uh, Mike Masnick's Tech Dirt podcast, you had a line that I just... I, I want to amplify. I want um, by repeating it here because I liked it so much. You said the whole idea of a de-amplified state is an epistemological mess, and I'd really love it if you could explain what you mean by that.
2: Sure. So I think we're all drawn to the idea that there's some internet state of nature to return to. You know, there's the the lost Eden of uh, of content that hasn't been messed with by by platforms. Um, And and it might be that there's a version of that if you're someone who uses social media to interact with a really small number of trusted people and no one else, you know, then maybe a chronological feed serves your needs. Um, For the rest of us though, our feeds are subject to the same noise and the same bad actor behavior that has messed up the internet forever. There are spammers trying to game the system and get attention. There's coordinated inauthentic behavior trying to push political messages. And the ways that platforms offset that are through algorithmic processes through, you know, for example, Facebook demotes things that almost violate its policies, but not quite. And Twitter, I assume if somebody is just tweeting the exact same thing every second for an hour, won't show you those things. They'll just show you one instance of when that person sent that message. You know, all of these are chronological mechanisms to offset ways that other people are trying to manipulate our information diet. Um, So the kind of like brain exploding thing to me here is on the one hand, there are these demands for platforms to fight inauthentic behavior. You know, people trying to manipulate what we see on platforms by like brigading to promote uh, Holocaust denial theories, you know t- terrible things. So we, we want platforms to stop that inauthentic behavior, but we also say that if they use the algorithmic tools that are necessary to achieve that end, then they're being inauthentic, they're being manipulative, they are amplifying in a way that we want them to stop. And the problem is just, there isn't a ground truth. There isn't some Edenic state to go back to that's real and, and we can compare other things to it and say that's amplification and it's bad.
1: I think also part of it is that people just really don't understand the role that algorithms play uh, in, you know, the internet generally. For my part, my favorite line of the whole paper uh, was people on the internet are terrible. Uh, and I say that with full self-awareness of being one of those terrible people <laughs> on the internet. Uh, but, you know, it, it's true. I mean, I, I think I've said this on every podcast I've I've been on is it, this is a human problem. Uh, you know, it's just, Human, human, all too human.
0: Yeah, as well, I. S- oh, go ahead, I,
2: You know, I I will push back on that some and say I think using algorithms to correct for human misbehavior is good. <laughs> like I am glad that you know Facebook is demoting the barely permitted. You know the. Almost hateful, but not quite hateful enough content. I'm glad that there are mechanisms out there to correct for spam. And I think for platforms themselves, it's really useful for them to think about algorithmic and ranking based responses to content in addition to straight up removal of content. You know, they should have this ar- array of tools at their disposal. Um, but Congress, has a lot fewer platform. excuse me, Congress has a lot fewer powers to restrict speech and experiment with different ways of doing that than platforms themselves do. So there's a, a real difference between asking, you know, when how can platforms use algorithms versus how can Congress regulate them?
0: I mean, I actually, in my head at least, have a divide between um, I want mainstream platforms to cultivate a certain environment that has outer boundaries. Um, I think we all as citizens have a right to yell at them and tell them, look, if terrible people are going to be terrible, make sure it's not on your watch. I don't want to use your product if it's on your watch, while at the same time turning around and looking at legislators and being like, you're not going to like solve the problem of people being terrible just by implementing some kind of content moderation rule. Um, And so I kind of find myself doing a little bit of a plague on both your houses where I approve of Twitter booting nutters. And I also find people saying that we are going to fix quote like our democracy with the right content moderation law to be a bit self-righteous and misguided.
1: I was going to say you both have more faith in humans than I do, but I, I think that uh, just got dispelled.
0: Well, as I like to say of Ari, uh, using a line from American foreign policy in the 20th century, you know, Ari's a bastard, but he's he's my bastard on Twitter. So uh, I'll take it. Why don't we back up half a step? I really wanted to just dive in and get into this stuff, but but um, and, and not waste time laying too much groundwork since we like to be sort of a deep dive policy podcast. But we should take a moment, Ari, and maybe just lay out, I said there's a lot of bills on the Hill. Could you give uh, you know, just a sketch of wh- what are we talking about? Well, we say algorithmic amplification. We've discussed uh, circuit breakers briefly, but what are legislators thinking about when they uh, explore that term in bills right now?
1: Well, it's hard to tell because the bills just largely don't make any sense. Um, but the, there's one, uh, the Justice Against Malicious Algorithms Act, I think I got that right, um, and that one would uh, remove the immunity provided by Section 230C1 when a website knew or should have known that it was making a personalized recommendation. I wonder what should have known you were making a personalized recommendation means or recklessly made a personal recommendation also don't know what that means really that materially contributed to a physical or severe emotional injury to a person and this is this this is what sticks in my cries that people write these laws and they're i'm not sure if it's performative or they just don't understand how things work but there's this divide between uh you know immunity and liability and there's something in the middle and it's called the cause of action and A lot of these these harms that people think that we could fix if only the platforms didn't have immunity, there just simply isn't a cause of action for. You can't, I mean, you can't sue people for, you can't sue people for saying mean things to you. You can't sue Facebook for allowing people to say mean things to you. And people seem to think that negligently allowing harmful information is something that you can sue a platform for. But in the long run, that's not going to work. It's going to cost A whole lot of money to wind through the litigation process, but it simply isn't going to work.
2: You know. You know. Let me. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Let me flag one instance of algorithmic targeting that I think um, maybe does have a cause of action, Um, and this is the allegations that Facebook is allowing people who are advertising housing, employment, or credit to target it towards people based on race or gender or other protected class status. And Facebook has uh, settled or won a number of these lawsuits or won initial motions. And, And recently they won one in California saying that they have a CDA 230 defense to that. And I'm not sure that that's right. Uh, I think in a case where the content itself wasn't harmful, like we're not talking about harmful content, we're talking about an apartment listing and the harm that was introduced was through the personalized algorithmic targeting and that was introduced by the platform and had nothing to do with what the user said. There's a pretty decent argument that that is Facebook's fault, and that there isn't a CDA 230 defense. But I kind of flag it here just to, to point out how different that is from the harmful content issues that we're talking about. You know, the the bills that you described are not about this, you know, housing employment credit, you know, racial targeting issue. They, they are about Saying certain content was bad in the first place and it got more bad because the platform targeted it or amplified it and you know that's the basis for liability and that's where you run into all the First Amendment issues that we're talking about.
1: Right. And I think there's a lot of room to talk about the, the civil rights laws. I think that's kind of one of the areas where there might actually be room to do something. Um, and, you know, if if Facebook, for instance, introduced the error, then you run into the uh, quite the neutral rules test and, and whether they actually created the harm or, or at least contributed to the harm and are therefore uh, an information content provider. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of room to talk about that, but on the the tort liability side, and we just saw uh, the Northern District of California just dismissed a law against uh, a lawsuit against Netflix, which was sued over 13 reasons why, um, saying that you should have known that targeting this towards uh, kids, then, you know, I, you should have known that was going to have a deleterious effect on their mental health and cause suicides, and indeed they said that it did cause um, their child suicide, um, and the court said, you know, the, the court didn't even really go into the, the 230 issues for the most part. Um, I'm not sure at all, even. Uh, but it said you you don't have a cause of action. There's a standing line of precedent going back to the 20s, even, where you can't sue for the content of speech because it was, you know, it's not negligence to give somebody bad information, in other words.
0: Um, Ari, you know, the, actually... It just flagged for me this, uh, decision like yesterday. And I, maybe I'm a fogey or whatever. I, I only just learned of 13 reasons on the plot. I mean, it's a wild plot. So a teenage girl commits suicide and she leaves behind notes that are basically clues as to why she killed herself. And as you can already see just from that synopsis, it's, um, potentially inflammatory material. And, the allegation, you know, their attempt to, to get their foot in the door in terms of liability is, well, we're not just suing about the content. We're suing about the fact that Netflix, through its algorithm, sort of raises it and recommends it to teens who then see it and then are inspired by it. Um, and I just I see so many problems with that. It sounds to me like some kind of, um, you know, controversial Henrik Ibsen play that has sort of a nihilistic tone to it. And then it gets advertised on posters. Oh my God. You know, so people, the the poster is recommending that I go sit and see this controversial piece of art. And then that creates liability. I mean, it just seems like a total, uh, swamp, uh, just a can of worms to open.
1: Yeah, I mean, the courts have been pretty clear and and consistent in not finding a duty to protect other people from bad speech. Uh, And for good reason. They would dramatically chill the willingness of publishers and TV stations and movie houses and what have you to show controversial content. Because if they were, you know, liable for promoting it or even publishing it, um, then they would only publish the most anodyne and show the most anodyne material possible. Um, and, and so people don't really understand that, you know, even without immunity, these lawsuits generally aren't gonna succeed because you don't have a duty to protect somebody from bad speech.
2: So as a mother of a teenager, I'm kind of having a panic attack listening to this, but it does sound like what we're talking about in the Netflix case, which, which I have not read, um, is, is lawful speech. Um, And and it's worth pointing out that the amplification 230 cases, Force v. Facebook in the Second Circuit, and uh, Gonzalez v. Google, I think is what it's called in the Ninth Circuit, which is unreadably long. Um, But both of those are about illegal speech. They are about speech uh, distributed by, as, as I recall, organizations on the State Department's design- designated foreign terrorist organizations list. So they, they violate the material support of terrorism laws. And the question is about algorithms that push that content or those accounts in front of users who maybe are then themselves you know, radicalized or inspired to, to commit violence. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are really troubling fact patterns. I'm extremely sympathetic to wanting to find someone who's responsible for stopping that. Um, I think the problem in the, the logic of the courts, um, or at least of the, the dissenter in, in force v. Facebook, who, who thought that there should have been uh, liability for, for Facebook for this, is they kind of assume that if the platform algorithmically promoted something, it means they knew what it was and assumed sort of moral responsibility and legal responsibility for it. Um, And I think if that were true, I I would be sympathetic to the the forced dissent position also. Um, You know, if if we believe there's a situation where platforms really for sure accurately can tell what's illegal and they're not going to overdo it and take down everything around it, that's the situation where telling them to take things down makes sense. And why stop at making them take it out of recommendations? You know, if if it's for sure illegal, uh, you know, and and they can tell and they're not going to screw it up all the time, you know, maybe having them remove it makes sense. But as I think anyone who gets targeted ads knows algorithmic amplification and targeting is not a product of the kind of deep knowledge and insights um, that that the dissent I think was assuming. Um, algorithmic amplification and targeting is hell of sloppy. I get ads all the time suggesting that I attend law school. I teach at Stanford Law School. This is a badly targeted ad. But they can get away with sloppy amplification and targeting because that's enough to make money. But that's not enough to attain the kind of knowledge about what's illegal content that the law should require before making somebody be responsible for you know taking it out of, of, uh, of somebody's newsfeed.
1: Yeah, there's this bizarre thought that in programming an algorithm with these billions of pieces of information, that somehow these platforms have put thought into each type of content and each particular like wording, and just have this omnipotent like view of you know what platforms like actually know about what's going on. But you just can't know all of that stuff. It's there, there's
2: too much of it. Well, and and you know who sold that message? That uh, you know, their uh, platforms are really good at targeting. They the really platforms. know what they're doing. The platforms, right? The platforms like, did. If, yeah. <laughs> if you're in the ad sales business, that's the message you're supposed to go out and tell your clients every. And anyone who's partners ever partners every gotten a <laughs> uh,
1: and anyone who's ever gotten a Facebook ad related to like a Google search they did three days ago, and is like, oh my god, everyone's watching all the time. They know everything about me.
0: I um, have a friend. They know who, something um,
1: about you, but.
0: Her job, she doesn't do it anymore, but her job was, she worked for a movie studio and she was the person who negotiated the tie-in sales with fast food restaurants. So when you see the movie advertised on the soda cup at McDonald's or whatever, you know, she did those kinds of deals. I once saw her work when I picked up a banana and the little Dole banana sticker, you know, had the movie she was doing. And I asked her, how do, you, how do you make these deals? You come in and you say, let's, let's get our, um, our products together. We'll sell more stuff. Um, and I said, if I were one of those people, my very first question would be, well, how many more sales do you generate? Um, Daphne's asked me, do I eat bananas at the movie? No, no that's, that's the point, is the movie was being advertised to me in my kitchen as I picked up the banana.
2: Oh, I, haven't been
0: to, okay. I Actually, I have three kids, so I haven't seen a movie in forever. Um, but the point being, the old line about, you know, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half. Uh, it's The platforms made this mistake of making it sound like they had solved that problem. And I think they really overplayed their hand on it. But I digress. Um, I was hoping to turn, Daphne, to the end of your paper where we, you know, you discuss uh, okay, so what do we do? Um, and I think intrigued is maybe the word to use, but you can tell me, um, that you're intrigued by the possibility of regulating amplification indirectly. Like you mentioned privacy earlier. Um, where, where are you? Where's your, where's your head at on that? And then maybe we can see what Ari has to say on the topic as well.
2: So the idea here is that either using competition law or using privacy law, you find a way to give users more control over what they're seeing in their news feeds to let them select their tolerance for violence or for nudity or political messages or cat videos, you know, whatever, dials and knobs so, so that we can have more control for ourselves. Um, And what I like about this is that it, is about empowering users. It's about pushing control to the margins of the network instead of the center. Um, It is uh, a way to get at this that is not about a top-down speech regulation by Congress, but rather a bottom-up process of people getting to choose what they want. Um, And I, I think by the same token, it has that approach has a better chance of getting around the kinds of First Amendment barriers that I that I describe in the article. Now, one of the main points of pushback on this is yeah, but what about users who will choose the all hate all the time or all lies all the time um, version of their Facebook feed or their you know their Twitter feed or whatever when, when they have this power to make that choice. And I think the answer to that is people do that already. You can do that on cable TV. You can do that on talk radio. Um, There isn't a first amendment ability to constrain those choices in traditional media. And and there isn't one in social media either, but at least by diversifying, uh, like introducing more media pluralism essentially and into people's news feeds, you let, Uh, you get away from the platforms having this centralized chokehold on what people see. You get away from particular, from their amplification mattering so much because it doesn't matter what Facebook chooses to put at the top of your feed. If you've selected a different flavor um, that, that, you know, gives you a different thing at the top of your feed. So, so the, the, whole issue of amplification becomes far less important if you have a diversity of different versions of the newsfeed out there. Art, for my part, I,
1: I, I'm interested in, in the privacy angle. Um, I know that there's there's some uh, claims that collecting data is, in its, is itself protected by the First Amendment. And I don't think that's a wholly unserious argument, uh, but I do think that there's probably uh, some room within First Amendment boundaries to regulate data collection. Um, So, you know, maybe the collection more so than the use perhaps. Um, So I I think that's for me, probably the place where I see the most potential for doing something that's that's within constitutional boundaries. Um, You know, I'm not a competition lawyer and, um, you know, I'm I'm not gonna open my mouth on that because uh, I'm just gonna sound like an idiot. But uh, for for my money, Privacy legislation is probably where it's at.
2: I mean, and I don't. One, I don't think
1: it's like. Sorry, go ahead.
2: One version of this is what my Stanford colleague Francis Fukuyama, working with a, a big team of people at Stanford, including Marie Tishkaka, former member of the European Parliament, what uh, they put out this recommendation for something they called middleware. Um, and for them, this was a competition mechanism. It was a way of using a competition approach, not current competition law, but potential competition law um, to address problems of speech and disinformation and electoral manipulation. And, and their idea was that, uh, you know, it's kind of like what I described before, as a user, you get to... Um, select your preference for the kinds of content that you see, but instead of that being settings that you communicate to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, uh, it's a, a situation where Facebook or Twitter or YouTube have to open up their platform to competitors who will offer competing ranking and content moderation services. So you can choose the Disney version of YouTube or a version of Twitter that's curated by a Black Lives Matter affiliated group, or a version of Facebook uh, that your church set up. Um, and this you know, th- this is very interesting to me. I think it, I've, I've written a piece in um, the Journal of Democracy pointing out the, just the logistical hurdles um, to getting there and including privacy hurdles and technical hurdles and, and revenue hurdles. But but it's a fascinating approach to me um, because I, I kind of love the idea of introducing competition at the layer of content moderation and having that be a way to kind of break down the monolithic control over public dialogue that people are worried about from platforms today.
1: Um, content moderation plugins for social media. thats That's really something.
2: Well, if we look across...
0: Uh, media sort of in the late 20th century, there there does seem to be a hint of sort of the rise and fall of empires. I mean, you take television, we had NBC, ABC, CBS, and then we had, even in the 90s, um, there were a few shows that every, everybody watched, you know, the NBC Thursday lineup with Seinfeld and everything's kind of broken down and people get their information in a much more diffuse manner. Um, with that as background, Daphne, putting the law aside, are you optimistic that there might be some kind of middleware or, or other diffuse, you know, blue sky, protocols, not platforms, uh, development just in the market by itself in years to come?
2: So left to my own devices, I would be pessimistic, you know, because of, as, as I put it in this this short article on middleware, you know, the major hurdles I see to just the technical design and, and how the data sharing works and so forth. Um, but there are all of these technologists running around trying to make this work, including, you know, Twitter launched Project Blue Sky, as as you mentioned, which is exactly this. It's an effort to make middleware work. And apparently Twitter sees that as in their business interests or or they wouldn't have done it. Uh, There are, you know, investors out there uh, putting money behind systems like this. Uh, So the fact that, I don't trust the investors. They, you know, they they get irrationally exuberant about all kinds of things. But the the technology- I have a bunch of like- money
0: sunk into truth social. I don't know what you're
2: talking <laughs> about. Sorry, go ahead. But the, 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 the confidence and enthusiasm of a bunch of technologists about this does give me optimism. You know, it makes me think at a minimum, this is a place that does not run into as many constitutional dead ends and that may have a way forward. And we should be kicking the tires and and figuring out if we can make that work.
1: Well, and if you can get platform buy-in, you kind of take the only real constitutional issue that, which would be the platform's uh, rights, uh, out of the equation. And you're, you're pretty much home free at that point if you can get platform buy-in. So, you know, more power yeah, I to think, them. If they- I,
2: I think you might get Twitter's buy-in and not Facebook's buy-in. So it's an what interesting What makes you say that? <laughs>
0: um, to be maybe slightly provocative. I mean, w- certainly on this podcast, we discuss this topic, social media content moderation a lot. And it's interesting. It has a lot of ins and outs. But um, are we perhaps investing, we, big big, grand we as a society or whatever, I don't know, as as think people or the chattering class, or do we invest too much energy in this? It, It seems to me like there is a vast epistemological divide in the country right now, to use that fancy word again, and people are just very upset about it and they are grasping for something, that they can point to um, as, a, as a cause or perhaps as a fix. Um, and I, I just sort of feel like the, I'm going to pick on them, the Aspen Institutes of the world are spilling a lot of ink on a topic because, I don't know, say they're looking for their keys where the light is good.
2: That's interesting. You know, th- that's that's where I'm looking to. <laughs> so I, I hate to fault anyone else for focusing too much on, on content moderation issues. Um, well, I to mean, be clear, you-
0: if I had to go to content moderation island and I could only take like three other people to work on the issue, you would, you would be there. So <laughs> you're fine.
1: And I'm chopped liver.
0: <laughs> Boy, you've got important work to do on Twitter, fighting the crazy directly. You're in the trenches, Ari.
2: So, I mean, my my simplest answer maybe is just the the thing that I've said before, which is, I think there are ways forward via competition and privacy that we should be examining, you know, for all of these both constitutional reasons and practical reasons. And, hey, maybe this is actually a good idea reasons. Um, But I come at those as ways to address problems of content moderation. Um, and so I'm not sure I'm getting myself out of, of the box that you're talking about. You know, maybe we should be focusing on climate change. Maybe we should be focusing on voter rights. Maybe we should be both, fo- you know, they're, they're on nutrition. There are many, many other things out there. Um, but I'm not I mean, what else should the Aspen Institute have focused on?
0: Uh, that's the thing. I mean, I don't want to be offensive. Like, it's a living like we have. Well, I'm um, going to get really out there. You know, Peter Turchin has the theory of overproduction of elites in societies, that it it a sign that a society has uh, serious problems is when they overproduce elites. So the French nobility, there's too many sons for the titles and it creates conflict. And in America, the analogy would be we have too many lawyers per capita, so you end up with a lot of people who... Um, don't have a great space to do productive work at all. I say that as somebody who's clearly, you know, ripe for this category. So, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm pointing my finger at, at myself. Um, so it's a very, very deep question. I mean, w- w- you're not going to, I don't know, hire people to go door to door to try to uh, combat the message that Dan Bongino does on the radio. Um, I think what I'm more getting at is not solutions at the level of what should be people be doing with their time, although I'm sure that's how I framed it at the outset. But equally important is, do we need to be toning down the rhetoric of what content moderation can achieve?
2: So I think there is a level of rhetoric that is extremely unhelpful and, and that tends to dominate congressional hearings, which is, fighting about what the speech rules should be. Uh, where one side is like, you need to take down more. How could you have failed to take down X? And the other side is, you need to stop taking down so much. You know Why did you take down X? Um, that, that's not productive in large part, because as you said at the outset, what both sides are asking for is something they don't have the power to legislate anyway. So all they're doing is yelling at platforms and you know, trying to influence them or look good to their constituents. It is not a productive path toward a, a legislative future. Um, but I do think once you get away from what is the right rule for speech, it is appropriate to ask a lot of questions about if we're going to outsource speech rules to platforms to enforce, as we do for copyright, for example, and for federal criminal law, what is the right structure for that to avoid unintended consequences of of all sorts? Um, If we are going to have a society with highly concentrated ownership of platforms and, Uh, You know, speech rules voluntarily developed and enforced to many, many, many people by those platforms. Should there be rules about that? And if so, what should there be? Should they be? I think those are really legitimate things to be asking about where the, the question is about process you know, about due process on platforms, about transparency, you know, all, all of these things that are about the mechanics, like the equivalent of civil procedure almost, rather than about the substance of which speech we should be mad about and which speech should be tolerated, and which speech should not.
1: I'm a little less bullish uh, on even the process stuff, um, but that's just because my, my general guiding principle in life is stop expecting the law to fix all of humanity's problems. Um, you know it, it, for me, you know running the risk of of over legalizing and, and essentially in a, in a sense constitutionalizing these private actors and this thing that really just, yes, it, it it does a lot for for discourse and people are on it and I can't deny that it's somewhat important, but the importance of social media, is just so overstated and, and fraught with hysterics, um, that, you know, for me, I mean, I will go with people should do something better with their time. Um, I should be able to do something better with my time. Uh, instead I'm sitting here fighting about this stuff. Um, I just, you know,
0: yeah, I look at, um... I, I I look at the way that my priors are drifting away from the priors of others, both in the elite class and then sort of the like the Trump base of the world i I clearly don't understand and wouldn't pretend to be able to under like grasp how they see the country and I see these divides and i i I have this maybe bad habit of looking at it across the vast expanse of history, Neil Chilson and I on a previous episode, were talking about like, what could the Roman empire have actually done in the third century to reverse a downward trend and like avoid the crisis of the third century and like reverse the debasement of the currency and all the problems they had. And it's like, the answer is nothing. Like there's these grand trends that are much deeper than little individual things that we point at. The problem is no, nonprofit organization is going to get donations with the theme of things are bad they're drifting in a certain direction and those trends will continue (laughs) period um so sorry to here we cannot end on on that negative
1: my my brand of misanthropic nihilism is, is definitely not good for donations
0: fatalism fatalism is not good for donations um daphne this has been so much fun what are you uh, and uh, once again, everybody, please check out Amplification and its discontents. Please check out her middleware paper. Um, what are you? What's on your mind these days? Is there any p- project upcoming you're excited about that you'd like to share?
2: Well, so I'm focusing a lot right now on on what the European Union is doing in the Digital Services Act. Um, which might make it not matter what the United States does um, because it will set rules that platforms will then uh, comply with globally in many cases. Um, and so you know, it will affect Americans use of the internet, um, you know, wh- whether we want that or not. Um, and I think, I, I did an op-ed in the Hill a year ago saying there are really good things about the Digital Services Act the DSA and Congress should emulate them and that includes you know differentiating between different kinds of technical providers on the internet so you're not treating infrastructure providers like cloudflare the same way you're treating facebook Uh, splitting out competition, privacy, and content issues, and not just munging them together in weird hybrid laws, the the way that we tend to do here, and being realistic about the process of content moderation and the ways that it goes wrong. So those are good things about the DSA. But at the same time, um, I think the DSA is going to a really extreme degree in, and I'll, I'll kind of agree with Ari here, layering law and process on top of every single decision about uh, content on major platforms and and even on on smaller platforms to a degree that's both super burdensome, like I think it is going to make uh, it much harder for smaller competitors to ever catch up with the current incumbents, um, and also uh, I'm, I am not sure that the cost benefit analysis there makes sense, that having multiple layers of appeal for every single decision a platform ever makes and extensive documentation sent to the government of every single decision a platform ever makes. I'm not sure that uh, that, that on net um, it is a good system. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm doing a lot of thinking about that, about the, the limits of asking for better process and the limits of asking for transparency and, you know, what the useful things are that we should ask for and what are the things that are just being added on because they sound good to somebody who hasn't thought about it very much.
0: Well, Daphne, you have an open invitation to return to the show anytime to discuss Europe um, or anything else, frankly. Um, to all of our listeners, I, I really I can't emphasize this enough. Um, Daphne is one of the people who's actually thinking seriously about these issues um, and doing the hard work while so many other people just shout at each other. So please, you know follow her on Twitter, amplify her. Um, and uh, you know, it was real and real real honor to have you on.
2: Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this discussion
0: thanks to you, Ari, for joining us as well.
1: As always. Thank you so much, Daphne.
0: I'm Corbin Barthold. Until next time.
2: The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.